0: What was your reaction to the news on Monday night and what were your first thoughts?
1: I was not surprised by the news that the court appears to be on the verge of overturning Roe. I think that a lot of people thought that writing had been on the wall, but I was very surprised to be reading it via a leak. And the content of the leaked draft opinion also surprised me in
0: several ways. That's Caitlin Myers. She's an economist at Millbury College. And what surprised her was the rationale that was used by the court. So the draft opinion seemed to argue that you can overturn Roe v. Wade without having a huge impact on people's lives.
1: And for me as an economist, that is where we get to step in. Like, I I don't feel particularly well-equipped to offer an opinion to society on the ethics of abortion or on the constitutional law issues here. But we economists are very well equipped to talk about the objective evidence on the causal effects of abortion policy on mm. people's lives. And we did so. We spoke up with quite a loud voice. More than 150 of us filed an amicus brief in this case. And we provided ample evidence that we do know a lot about the causal effects of abortion access and that they are substantial. And that's why I was so surprised and disappointed in the draft brief to see the court say, yeah, there's this whole issue of societal reliance and we don't really have any way to know.
0: Because mm-hmm. you feel like, well, that's what I study. <laughs> we do
1: know. We do know. In fact, there is evidence on this.
0: And what that evidence shows about the effects of being denied an abortion is pretty striking. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, May 4th. Today, we talk to Caitlin Myers about the economics of abortion access. Why do you think it's so important to talk about abortion, not from an ethical perspective or even from a legal perspective, but from an economic perspective?
1: Well, I think the facts should matter. Abortion is a very thorny issue. People feel really strongly about it. And I understand and respect that. I personally, even though I live in like very liberal Vermont now, I come from the rural Appalachian, the rural deep South. I know people who feel very strongly and very differently than I do. And and I respect that there are differences of opinion. I also believe that there are facts, there is objective evidence that points to how salient abortion access is to people. And that anybody, regardless of kind of what side to the extent that there are sides of this issue, regardless of what side they fall on, this evidence should matter. It should objectively matter. We should understand that by restricting abortion access, we are restricting people's lives and we will have substantial consequences that are really going to fall on the poorest and most vulnerable women in the population. And I think that fact should matter to everyone.
0: So before we talk more about that, I want to dive into a little bit of history. So take me back to 1973 or maybe 1972. And what was abortion access and what what did abortion look like in the U.S. before Roe v. Wade?
1: So Roe v. Wade legalized abortion nationwide. But there were places where it had been legal prior to 1973. And that's actually really important to our state of knowledge about the effects of abortion. If you were looking at this country in 1972, the year before Roe v. Wade was decided, five states and Washington DC had already legalized abortion. And two of those states, California and New York state, are quite large. They have large populations. And they were common destinations, particularly New York State, for people coming from the rest of the country seeking a safe and legal abortion. Mm-hmm. And so in 1972, what we had wasn't a situation where there was no legal abortion in the U.S. It was a situation where there was enormous inequality and in access. Women in some states could obtain it women in other states could travel there to obtain abortion if they had the resources, if they had the means. In fact, it was quite common. There were even advertisements, for instance, in Michigan newspapers, like in Detroit mm. newspapers, Ann Arbor newspapers, there were advertisements for chartered abortion flights, where for one wow. price, a woman could buy, she would come and fly with a bunch of other women to Buffalo, New York, be provided with an abortion, and be flown back in the same day. Wow. Wow. And the only like kind of catch, to the extent that there would be a catch for a woman wanting to use this, is the price was quite high. Mm-hmm. And so we had this situation where more affluent women were able to access the service, and less affluent women were not. And that is really what Roe changed. When Roe legalized abortion nationwide, it became much more widely accessible, and that had dramatic effects on people's lives.
0: So fast forward to today, I mean, I think that many people still have a very particular image in their minds of who it is who gets an abortion in the U.S. And I think a lot of times that picture is like, you know, like a high school kid, someone who's quite young, who doesn't have any other kids. But tell me from a data perspective, like, what do we know about who is actually getting abortion these days or or what a, a person getting an abortion looks like or where they are in their lives now?
1: Gosh, I I love that question. And if that's the picture that folks have in their minds, then I should dispel a misconception because only about 3% of people who get abortions in any given year are minors under the age of 18. That is not to say that for the minors who do get abortion, it's not incredibly important to their lives, but 97% of people getting abortions are adults. And The majority of them, I think it's about 60%, already are parenting children. Hmm. People from all walks of life seek abortions. But if you want to kind of think about a modal person seeking an abortion, it's an adult who is already parenting children and Mm -hmm. who is low-income or poor. Hmm. 75% of people seeking abortions are low-income and about half of them are below the poverty line. And on top of being... Low income and poor, about 60% of them also are reporting that they have recently experienced some sort of disruptive life circumstance, such as they've just lost their job, they've just broken up with a partner. And I don't know that that should particularly surprise us because seeking an abortion is not a random event in somebody's life. You know, people are seeking abortions for reasons, and you see it in the data that these are already vulnerable populations.
0: And what about scenarios where pregnant people are worried about health outcomes, either the health outcome for themselves or the outlook for their fetus?
1: I mean, those are absolutely agonizing decisions that also prompt women to seek abortions. And it it remains to be seen what the nuances of state bans will be in terms of addressing abortions that are taking place to protect maternal health or for issues of kind of, uh, for instance, a fetus not being viable I think it's very likely that women in those situations are facing a substantial abridgment of abortion access also. That said, the vast majority of abortions in this country now are abortions taking place under circumstances other than those, are uh, what we might call elective abortions.
0: So tell me a little bit about how abortions play a role in the lives of of people that you're describing here, of people who are maybe older than we imagine or who've had some kind of disruptive life event and why an abortion plays such a big role in their lives?
1: So let me start by talking about why it should be no surprise that access to abortion affects these people's lives. First of all, It's well established that childbearing is the single largest contributor to gender gaps in economic outcomes. Just to give one example of that, if you look at the earnings of men and women, the gap actually isn't enormous before they have children. And men and women's earnings tend to trend pretty similarly up until the point that they have children. Hmm. And it's right there that something huge happens. Well, For women, for men, not much happens to their earnings when they have children. For women, their earnings kind of just fall off a cliff by about 30% on average in the U.S. Mm. And they really never recover. So becoming a mother is the single largest economic decision most women will make. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of women, that's a decision that that they want to make. It's a sacrifice that's well worth it to them. I have four children, and I'm sure I've made a kajillion sacrifices I don't even understand. And that's fine. It's worth it to me. Mm When you look at people who are seeking abortions, they typically already are parenting children, they already are sacrificing, and they're facing a moment where they feel like they can't do more because they're in those vulnerable circumstances. And they're often facing situations where they have very limited access to paid leave, for instance, from work. If they're looking for childcare, the median price of childcare for an infant in the United States is about $10,000 a year, which far exceeds the budget of a poor or a low income family. And the subsidies that are available for childcare are wholly insufficient. And that's even assuming that a low-income working mother can obtain that child care. A lot of low-income women are working in what's called shift work and they have irregular schedules. They don't know when they're going to work. They can get called in at the last minute, which even further complicates obtaining care. Hmm. If these women are perhaps considering um, relying on the social safety net some to help support them in an unexpected birth, an unexpected pregnancy, that social safety net is very frayed in this country. And it's particularly frayed in a lot of states that are most hostile to abortion rights. So, for instance, a woman in Mississippi, which is the origin of this big case in the Supreme Court, if she's considering using welfare to temporarily support her and her children, the maximum benefit she could receive for a family of three is $220 a month to support them. Hmm. It's not a lot. <laughs> it's not a lot. I, I can't imagine supporting a family on that, even with the availability of, you know, some other limited social services. So it really shouldn't be much of a surprise to kind of look at the current circumstances facing working women in the United States and to understand that an unintended pregnancy is a moment of kind of huge financial and economic uncertainty for these women.
0: After the break, we talk more with Caitlin about what exactly that financial uncertainty looks like. We'll be right back. For economist Caitlin Myers, talking about what happens to someone when they can't get an abortion is not just theoretical, because there is data on what happens when people try to get an abortion, they can't get an abortion, and their economic lives change after that.
1: This is not hypothetical, and this is also isn't one of those situations where people get to say, "Oh, correlation isn't causation." We actually have very strong causal evidence on what happens. To give you one example, uh, the turnaway study, which uh, comes out of ANSWER at the University of California at San Francisco, has offered us some really nice contemporary evidence on what happens to people's financial lives.
0: And, and when you say turnaway, you mean like people who were turned away from an abortion, right?
1: That is exactly what I mean. So the research design in that study basically follows a fairly large group of women who are appearing at U.S. abortion providers. And when they arrive there, some of these women are learning that they are just past the gestational age cut off to obtain an abortion at the provider, while others are just under it and able to obtain the abortion. So ultimately, one group obtains a desired abortion and the other group is turned away. Now, I initially, when I heard about this research design, I was actually still a little bit skeptical because I thought maybe there's something about the group of women who's arriving just too late, like just past a threshold Mm. that already was making their lives different. Like maybe Mm -hmm. they particularly had a really difficult time getting the money together to pay for the abortion they wanted. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they still were going to look kind of worse off in terms of, for instance, their poverty or their financial circumstances later. But the researchers really put a concern like that to bed. And what they do, and there's this wonderful paper that's just come out by Diana Foster Green, Sarah Miller, and Laura Wary. And what they do is match these women to their credit reports, to their Experian credit reports. Hmm. And we can see what's happening to them in the months and years leading up to that unintended pregnancy. And we can see that leading up to the moment that they appear at that abortion provider all of these women have pretty similar credit reports pretty similar financial circumstances and it's the moment they get there and one group is turned away and the other isn't that their financial circumstances diverge Enormously. And the group that's turned away has a a real decline in their Mm. uh, financial security. For instance, they have about an 80% increase uh, relative to the others in adverse credit events like bankruptcies. Mm. And so this isn't just conjecture about what happens to people when they don't get abortions they want. Like we can see it quite clearly in the data.
0: And I can imagine right now there is the fear that. If Roe v. Wade were to be overturned, and that whatever exists of abortion access in states that are hostile to abortion, if that goes away completely, that there would be so many women who are in that position of seeing their finances really struggle because they weren't able to get an abortion
1: that is the concern, and that's where I would return to that question of what what can we do with objective evidence like this? I think that however one feels about the ethics of abortion, that fact, that prediction should help motivate policies to protect and support people who are quite vulnerable to the shocks that are about to occur.
0: But I want to push back a little bit more on that because I do feel like an argument that I can imagine a lot of people who oppose abortion can make, and I think is frankly a very reasonable argument, is like, well, then maybe we should make it less economically catastrophic to have a child or to become a mother or become a mother to, you know, a third or fourth child that maybe we should be supporting people more financially, increasing welfare, like helping them stay on their feet in a way that's not happening now. And that like the answer here isn't don't have a kid, but just make it easier to have that kid.
1: I would have no objection to that type of policy response. I think Whatever one thinks about the ethics and legality of abortion, I would like to imagine we live in a world where we can agree on supporting women and families. I, I don't know if we do, but I would certainly point people who are watching what's happening with abortion access to thinking about child tax credits, to thinking about uh, welfare support, to thinking about all of the various components of the social safety net that support women and families. And I would particularly point to the fact that since the 90s, every place where we have tried to strengthen that net has been focused on women who work, families with income. And I can understand that impetus, but I would also point to the fact that the moment a woman has a newborn child is a moment where it's extraordinarily difficult to work. And we need to think about the social safety net that supports the poorest families, including moments where women are going to find it really difficult to maintain their engagement with the labor
0: force. So if Roe v. Wade were to be overturned, are there numbers or projections on how many people who otherwise would have gotten an abortion just wouldn't be? Like the, the people who would just not have any other options and would thus have a kid instead of getting an abortion?
1: Yeah, so we've got a pretty good guess of what is going to happen. And I want to talk a little bit about like how we know what we know here, because I think it's kind of interesting. And I also think that it suggests that we have good basis for these predictions. Mm -hmm. So if Roe is overturned, and it certainly looks like it's about to be, we know that 13 states have trigger bans on their books, and abortion is immediately going to be banned in those states. We also know that an additional 12 to 15 states are very likely to quickly ban abortion as well, either by enforcing pre-row bans that they still have on their books or enacting new bans. So we can engage in a thought experiment, and I have engaged in this experiment in my research, where we essentially have these states go dark. We close the providers in these states, and we recalculate travel distances that people seeking abortions are going to face. And if you could just imagine a map of the United States, I think that the places that go dark where travel distances increase a lot are probably like not super surprising to folks. It's a wide swath of the U.S. South and more conservative states, particularly in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. So what happens when the providers there close? In some ways, we return to... What the world was like in 1972, we return to a world in which women who are seeking an abortion and have the financial means are going to travel to the states where it's still legal. And the question is, how many make it out and how many can't? Hmm. Well, we have a pretty good answer to that too because we've had evidence from the last 10 years of abortion providers closures in the United States. For instance, in 2013, half the providers very suddenly closed overnight in Texas because of a law that was enacted there. And we already have a big literature that uses that evidence to estimate how many people can't reach a provider if the travel distance is 50 miles, if it's 100 miles, if it's 150. So if you plug that evidence in the prediction is that about three-quarters of the affected women are going to find a way to get out, hmm. and about a quarter of them can't.
0: That they just don't have any other options and that they...
1: Well, I'm not saying they don't have any other options, but they're not going to obtain abortion services through a provider that remains in the United States. Mm -hmm. About a quarter. That's about, at current rates, we're talking about 100,000 women in the first year after Roe is reversed. That's about the number that we're looking at who can't get out. So what do they do? (sighs) So some of them are going to have spontaneous miscarriages anyway. Some of them are going to find a way to do what's called self-managing an abortion, which is eventually finding a way to, like, order the medications that induce abortion Mm -hmm. or find a way to get an abortion through what an economist might call, like, kind of a black market. And then finally, some of them end up giving birth. So in my most recent research, I used birth certificates for the entire country to construct really detailed county-level information on where women, what what births are by county, and to look at how that's shocked by abortion clinic closures. And based on those results, I expect that about three quarters of the women who can't get out end up giving birth as a result. So we're expecting about 75,000 births to result in the first year after a row reversal that are arising from women who wanted to obtain an abortion and were not able to.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. But I also wonder how birth control plays a role in this, because from what you're describing, it sounds like in many ways, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, we will be exactly in the position that we were in in 1973. And yet birth control is different. Access to birth control is different. The Affordable Care Act has theoretically made it possible for everyone who has health insurance to be able to get birth control covered through that. And so how do you see that playing a role now and how we should think about the cost of limiting abortion access or even the challenges going forward of trying to help women who don't want to have children right now?
1: I think you've really hit the nail on the head in terms of the ways in which this won't be a return to 1972. So there are differences one of them is that we have greater access to safe and reliable birth control, particularly through the Affordable Care Act, contraceptive mandates, Medicaid expansions, and just greater access for all sorts of reasons to long acting reversible contraceptives, in particular, which are IUDs and implants, which are very effective at preventing pregnancy. And they are part of the reason we're already seeing a, a substantial decline in unintended pregnancies. Hmm. That said, It's still not the case that everybody has access. And of course, accidents still happen. No method is foolproof. And so I would point to the fact that, first of all, not every state has expanded Medicaid. Mississippi, I believe, is one of the states that hasn't. And the states that haven't have much higher rates of young, poor adults who still lack health insurance and therefore lack affordable access to the most effective methods of contraception. And it's still the case that even if unintended pregnancy rates are declining, almost half of all pregnancies are unintended right now. Close to half of those end in abortion. Mm-hmm. We are talking about in any given year right now, about one to one and a half percent of U.S. women of reproductive age have an abortion every year. Wow. And over the course of their reproductive lifetimes, that would be about one in four American women.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I would say, yes, contraception has improved. Yes, access has improved. And yes, unintended pregnancies are lower than they used to be. But it's still the case that this is something that happens quite frequently and that we haven't fully expanded access to safe and reliable contraception.
0: Caitlin, what else are you going to be watching for as all of this unfolds? And we wait to see what the court finally rules on this.
1: Well, I'll tell you, there's two big questions we haven't touched on that I'm I'm really watching carefully. One of them is about appointment availability at the providers that remain. So when I forecast for you how many women get out and how many women don't, and I forecast how many births will result, that's based on an assumption that for the hundreds of thousands of women who are flooding out of the deep South and the Midwest to the states where providers remain, that they can get appointments at those providers. And I recently conducted a survey of appointment availability at all U.S. abortion providers with my students at Middlebury College. And what we found is that appointment availability is already quite limited Mm -hmm. in a lot of places, including places that are likely to be destinations for these women. And so I'm not at all confident that, in fact, the providers will be able to absorb this influx, at least in the short run. Now, in the long run, you can imagine that some of these providers are going to start to expand their capacity to help meet this demand. But I think that's a big question mark and definitely one of the things I'm watching. There are key states like Florida that right now we're predicting don't go dark and don't ban abortion that very well could buck that prediction and end up banning abortion. Mm -hmm. And I wonder for a provider in Florida thinking about expanding their capacity to meet this huge inflow of people from states like Georgia and Alabama, do they do it? Do they invest in it when they themselves might perceive a risk of being shut down?
0: Mm.
1: I don't know. And I think it's one of the things to watch. And it's a reason that my predictions might be, in the end, really underestimates of what's about to happen. I'd also point out that it's a reason that women who live in states where abortion is likely to remain available might also experience reductions in access. Hmm. They may not realize it until they call their provider that their provider is so inundated.
0: That they say we have all these people coming in from out of state and we can't. They're
1: like, we can't do it.
0: On our, yeah.
1: So that is absolutely one thing to watch is capacity of these providers and kind of what they do. And the other big question mark is what will happen to mail order access to medication abortion?
0: And and can you describe a little bit more about what that access looks like now? I mean, if someone wants to order an abortive medication by mail, I mean, like, how does that work?
1: Yeah, so it depends on what state they live in. If you are in a state that allows it, then... Because of recent FDA policy changes, it's increasingly the case that you can actually call a provider in your state and arrange a telemedicine appointment from your home and have these drugs mailed to you and actually not have to travel at all. Mm. But not surprisingly, the states that allow that are not, for the most part, or I think actually in any part, the states that are likely to ban abortion. The states that are likely to ban abortion are not allowing for that type of telemedicine provision. So, if you're a woman there right now, the question is can you travel to another state that allows it and have the medication abortion shipped to a P.O. box or a hotel there or a friend there? Um, and the other option is to simply not order it from a licensed provider at all, but rather there are places online that provide these medications that are not licensed US healthcare providers, but for the most part right now seem to be providing the real thing. And the real thing is safe and effective. And so the question is, how many women are willing to obtain an abortion in that way, and what steps, what approaches will the states that are banning abortion take to try to limit that form of access?
0: I mean, can't imagine that it's anyone's ideal scenario to, even if you're getting these medications by mail, if to get it through some random website on the internet versus getting it through your doctor or, or someone who's more trusted.
1: I can tell you what I'd want to choose.
0: Yeah. Caitlin Myers, thank you so much for all of this.
1: Thank you for having me and for the deep dive into these issues.
0: Caitlin Myers is an economist at Middlebury College. Emma Talkoff produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers.